The Daily Rios Digest, August 22nd, 2021. Meanwhile Monday. So this is the second Meanwhile Monday, taking a look at the second column by Dick Giordano uh, that was featured in DC Comics, cover dated of March 1983. So you can find this article, this column in Action Comics 541, Arik Son of Thunder 19, Wonder Woman 301, Captain Carrot 13, Justice League of America 212, possibly also in All-Star Squadron 19, New Teen Titans 29, and Legion of Superheroes 297. Plus, you know, it might show up in other comics uh, cover dated March 1983. So this is his second column, and I'm going to just touch on some of the topics here. The first one being uh, a look at... Camelot 3000, but not the comic, more about uh, how the comic is distributed and how it's uh, released through the direct market. I found this interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, he never really goes into what Camelot 3000 is in terms of the writers or the stories, so that's interesting. Um, But it also comes across as, uh, you know, a, a... a member of DC Comics saying there's this new thing out there, this direct market uh, that has been around for a while, but maybe people are slow to learn about what it really is. So he's taking time to talk about it here in his uh, column. And I think that's, I thought that was very interesting, especially because it's 1983. I mean, comic specialty stores had been around for a little bit by this time. Um, So he starts off by saying, you know, uh, I hope you know about Camelot 3000. By the time you read this, four issues should be out. And Dick Giordano states, this is the first in a line of very special comics printed offset on Baxter paper, a far better grade of paper than regular comics. It's actually white. We expect to have four or five monthly titles in this format, before 1983 is out, more in a future column. So the terms Offset, Baxter, later on, if you listen to the the Legion Project, we we talk every now and then about how sometimes the Baxter line is called the Deluxe line. I've even seen it referred to as New Format before DC actually got a New Format line. So all these words are being pushed out and passed around. Uh, Again, it's so interesting that for me and many other comic readers that the term Baxter really kind of overwhelmed the line, you know. New Teen Titans, the Baxter run. Legion of Superheroes, the Baxter run. Outsiders, the Baxter run. Um, Dick Giordano talking about that they're going to have other monthly titles in this format. I did talk about what those titles could be in the first Meanwhile Monday segment from uh, the August 1st Digest. So you can go listen to that. Dick Giordano continues and says, Camelot 3000 is sold at a comic shop or, and this is an interesting distinction, any other dealer who gets his comics on a non-returnable basis. I guess, you know, laying it out that yes, there are comic stores, but there are also dealers who maybe don't own comic stores. I don't know, is he talking about people who are at conventions or is he talking about stores that don't that don't just uh, trade in comics? Maybe they are collectible stores, you know, at that time, uh, baseball cards, uh, model sets, uh, games. I could think of, you know, stores that I might have seen um, that are referred to as collectible stores that have a comic section but aren't devoted truly to comics. So I wonder if he's talking about that. And again, I just think it's real interesting that he's taking the time 
to explain what this is. Now, he never uses the phrase direct market, and I don't know when that was widely used, when that started to be widely used. So if anybody knows, we because we hear about the creation of the direct market and Phil Sewing, and um, there are several articles on the Mile High Comics website, at least there were, I don't know if they're still there, written by Chuck Rosansky, all about kind of like the development and the creation of the direct market and how the relationship between retailers and publishers changed and grew and it's from his point of view so you know you sort of got to take it for what that is but the term so we know that there is such a thing called the direct market but when was it called that specifically uh dick giordano doesn't mention it here in this column i don't know if he mentions it in future columns so i just thought it was interesting that He's explaining, but not actually naming what this whole system is. And then at the end, he says, write to DC and we will help you out. Some of them even, some of the uh, retailers even offer a neat subscription service for readers who live too far from the store or are too lazy to stop in every week. Subscriptions from DC uh, can also be found, but only with monthly comics within this format, not the miniseries or maxi series. So again, training readers or pointing them in a direction that, hey, maybe you get your comics as I did when I was a kid before Golden Eagle from like a local mom and pop shop that had a news uh, a newsstand, a, a spinner rack, you know, uh, uh, down on the corner from where I lived. But if I wanted to go to a dedicated comic store, I had to go into Reading. I had to t take a bus and, you know, whatever and go into Reading. Or, you know, my sister took me to Hildebrand's, which was the first comic store I was, I was ever um, taken to before Golden Eagle. So I want to say I started to go to Golden Eagle sometime around like 1985, um, where in the first store where it was located. And before that, it was mom and pop stores. It was a newsstand in the middle of, you know, in the in the heart of Reading. Um, it was like a news agency, I should say. It was like a store. It wasn't like a newsstand on the corner block. Although Philly, every now and then in Philly, uh, you would walk by a newsstand that would have comics on the outside, just randomly trying to sell, you know, random 90s comics for $5. But that's something totally different. So anyway, so Dick Giordano taking time, explaining, trying to get people to realize that there are there, there's a, there is a direct market without actually saying that. Um, so I found that that was an, uh, a really cool use of this space, especially for someone in his, in his position to make sure that readers are aware that there are places out there where you can get comics. It's the, it's, you know, late 1982. It's, and, uh, you know, that way you aren't missing comics just by randomly trying to go into the, into a mom and pop store or newsstand or something like that. Here you can actually sign up and get a uh, subscription. So cool. Just cool little history here. We continue with the history here as Dick talks about a meetup that happened in New York from September 13th through the 15th in 1982, where DC gathered freelancers that were local, freelancers that were non-local, I assume uh, DC staffers, gathered them all together for a weekend event that uh, apparently they had to get the okay from publisher Jeanette Kahn to do. So that means that this column, the second Meanwhile column, was written sometime after those September dates, but before December of 1982, because uh, books cover dated of March 1983 shipped mostly in December of 1982. So that that's an, gives you an insight into the time, uh, the, a window of time that he has to write this article. So this summit, this meeting happened at not only at the DC headquarters at the time, but the Berkshire Place Hotel on 52nd Street. The first day was for non-local freelancers to come see the headquarters and to have some meetings. And then the second day, local freelancers showed up and Dick writes, for the first time, 
people who had been working on the same projects were able to meet each other and exchange ideas. So some of the people in attendance, Jerry Conway, Danette and Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, Dan Jurgens, Pat Broderick, Mark Evanier, Dan Spiegel, Rick Hoberg, Al Gordon, Scott Shaw, Dennis Jensen, Keith Pollard, Tony Desaniga, and Steve Gerber. Dick mentions unable to, in, to attend Mike Grell, Alex Toff, Don Newton, and Marty Pasco. So when I saw that list of names, I put on my little sleuth's hat and I thought, okay, what projects were they working on individually or together? And what projects would they be working on after this meeting? Right. If this whole meeting was to bring people together to to exchange ideas, to see the corporate offices, et cetera, et cetera, you have to imagine there were some ideas that were cooked up during all of those breakout meetings and uh, late night sessions, uh, you know, when they were just out together. So uh, so I came up with some possibilities. Now, I, I'm not listing everything. I'm sure I've missed some stuff or I'm just not talking about some obvious stuff, but Here's what I came up with. Uh, again, this meeting happened in September of 1982, so you have to imagine anything that they were working on for the future probably wasn't going to come out until like first quarter 1983 at the earliest. So we start with Jerry Conway. Jerry Conway and Pat Broderick were working on the Firestorm title at this time. Batman 359 which would ship in February of 1983, would be Jerry Conway's last Batman issue, uh, as well as Detective Comics 526. And that issue, that last issue that Jerry wrote, was drawn by Dan Jurgens, both of them at the uh, in attendance at this meeting. Um, you could imagine that maybe Jerry Conway with Roy Thomas, they might have hashed out details for Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension, a two-part story that would be in Justice League of America 219 and 220, which would come out in July, August of 1983. I'm not saying that is what they talked about. I'm saying, you know, that's something they might have dropped some early hints at. That could have been cool. Certainly Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway being in attendance could probably talk about All-Star Squadron. Jerry Ordway would start penciling the book, not just inking, but penciling with issue number 19, which came out in December of 1982. So the two of them, if it was already in the process of being made or, or was finished, they could hash out ideas for later stories. Infinity Inc. doesn't ship until December of 1983, but you have to imagine they could be, they could talk about the early seeds that would happen in All-Star Squadron when the Infinity Inc. would show up for a bunch of issues that Jerry Ordway did draw, so they could be talking about lineage and character design, etc. Um, Infinity Inc. is one of those monthly Baxter titles that Dick Giordano was talking about. Rick Hoberg's name is on a few issues of All-Star Squadron at this time, especially starting with All-Star Squadron 31 in December of 1983. So again, a lot of All-Star Squadron connections. And since Roy is there and Danette is there, and you have Scott Shaw and Al Gordon and Rick Hoberg again, those names are all over the Captain Carrot title. I'm sure it was fun to bat around ideas uh, about upcoming storylines for that zany series that I love so much. Mark Evanier and Dan Spiegel were on Blackhawk at this time. Uh, Blackhawk was around issues 250s and the 260s. Dennis Jensen was inking Flash over Carmine Infantino at this time, but also a few stories in Blackhawk. And would work with uh, Mark Evanier on a DC Comics Presents issue featuring Blackhawk, issue number 69, which would come out in February of 1984. So I don't know if they're planning ahead that far along, but there's a lot of connections there. Keith Pollard was on Green Lantern, a few issues inked by Rick Hoberg. This was around Green Lantern 150s, 160s. Keith Pollard would draw the first batch, first batch of issues on Vigilante, 
with Marv Wolfman starting in August of 1983, so maybe there was a hookup there. Tony Dezaniga by this point was inking stories in Jonah Hex around Jonah Hex issues 60s and 70s. Dan Jurgens and Mike Grell were on Warlord at this point, again, around issues the 60s and the 70s. Now, Steve Gerber, that's an oddity. So for DC, he did write the four-issue Phantom Zone miniseries, but that had come out in 1982. He wrote and plotted uh, a story in Flash 310 through 313, also in 1982. And then he wouldn't write another DC comic until DC Comics Presents 97, the final issue featuring Superman and the final chapter of the Phantom Zone criminals. But that's 1985, or, yeah, 1985 or 86. Uh, and they called it an untold tale of the pre-crisis universe. So why was he there? <laughs> and may, was he there that early to talk about that final DC Comics Presents issue? That would seem weird, right? Um, or maybe I was then sort of speculating, okay, he wrote the Phantom Zone miniseries. He writes that D DC Comics Presents issue. It's kind of... Uh, his word and his take on the end of the Phantom Zone. So was that a story that he was trying to develop early and then they just saved it for later? So I don't know. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that his name was there, but there really isn't a lot of Steve Gerber output in 1983 and 1984. So if anybody has any ideas about that, let me know. Okay, then finally... Dick Giordano uh, wraps up his column, his second column, talking about how the DC offices are going to move to 666 Fifth Avenue, which happened, I think, in November of 1982. That would be their headquarters until 1991. And I can remember a few images within comics when there would be a battle in New York and somebody would smash into a building that had a giant 666 across the top. Um, after 19, or in 1991, the offices would move to 1325 Avenue of the Americas until May of 1995, and then they would go to 1700 Broadway, uh, which is where I saw the DC offices for the first time. Um, I was staying in a hotel, I think either right across or sort of catacorner to the offices and I could see in the windows this is the early 2000s I could see in the windows the DC logo or uh, you know like a character like Green Lantern or the Superman shield and, and I was like oh wait a minute I think that's where DC's offices are now I was working in a, an event in New York at the time so there was no I didn't have time to actually try to make my way in but it was kind of cool seeing all of that stuff going on uh, in the windows. So, and then that's it. That's it for this column. I will continue to look at uh, future Meanwhile columns, uh, either individually or I'll group them up, depending on how much information is there. Um, hopefully you are enjoying this little trip through DC history. Trivia Tuesday. I did this in another uh, digest where I read a bunch of questions from my trivia game. I thought it would be fun to do that again. And I'm going to make them topic specific this time. So I have uh, six questions from DC, all focused on the writer Alan Moore. And this is a nod to Mr. Phil. He'll know why. And then for Marvel, I have six questions all focused on Spider-Man. So put on your trivia cap, and uh, this is, again, just a way to show you, you know, the, the trivia game that I have, you know, questions that, that are in the trivia game, give you an idea, um, uh, and to test your knowledge a little bit here. So now the DC questions are all taken from the category of hypertime, which means even though they're, they're on DC cards, they could be about any publisher. So here are your Alan Moore questions. I'm going to read the questions first, and then I'll um, give you the answers at the end in case you want to write it down for yourself or, or 
just see if you get the answers right. So here we go. Here are your questions. In Watchmen, the first night owl had a sidekick pet dog codenamed what? Number two, during Alan Moore's American Gothic run in Swamp Thing, an evil cult of male witches were intent on bringing about the destruction of heaven. What was this group's collective name? From Miracle Man, what word was used as a fail-safe mechanism by his enemy to transform Miracle Man back into his human persona? Fourth question, first appearing in Alan Moore's Wildcats run, Maxine Manchester is the cyborg punk better known as... Fifth question, what town did Supreme grow up in during Alan Moore's run? And the final question, Ingrid Weiss, Paul Savine, Vanilla Tuesday, and the Modular Man are all villains in the rogues gallery of which ABC character, ABC publishing or ABC comics character? All right, your answers for number one, the pet sidekick dog is Phantom. The group in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run is called the Brujeria. The failsafe word for Miracle Man was Abraxas. Maxine Manchester is better known as Ladytron. Supreme grew up in Little Haven. And all of those villains are in the rogues gallery for Tom Strong. Okay, here are the Marvel Spider-Man questions. If you're a big Spider-Man fan, let's see how well you do. Um, these bounce around, so one of them might be like a continuity question, one of them might be an events question or character and creator. Uh, so I just pulled six questions. Now, I think they are in chronological order from like the oldest Spider-Man comics to, you know, like somewhere in the 90s. But um, I wasn't real specific. So anyway, here we go. As seen in Amazing Spider-Man 25, the robotic Spider Slayer was brought to J. Jonah Jameson as a means to capture Spider-Man. Who was their inventor? Number two, from which fictional Marvel high school did Peter Parker graduate? Number three, from Amazing Spider-Man 156, what villain interrupted the wedding of Betty Brant and Ned Leeds in an attempt to rob the guests? Number four, which artist provided the cover for Web of Spider-Man number one, cover date April of 1984? Number five, name the writer and artist that created Carnage. And number six, what book did Peter Parker quote from? as Aunt May passed away in Amazing Spider-Man 400. All right, here are your answers. The inventor of the Spider-Slayer is Spencer Smythe. The high school that Peter Parker graduated from, Midtown High School. The villain that interrupted the wedding of Betty and Ned is Mirage. Charles Vess provided the cover for Web of Spider-Man number one. The creators of Carnage, David Michelinie and Mark Bagley. And the story that Peter Parker quoted from was Peter Pan. Second star to the right, straight on till morning. There you go. Just a subset of questions I thought would be fun to present here on uh, Trivia Tuesday. Let me know how you did. New Comics Wednesday. Here are my recommendations for the comics of this week, the week of August 18th. I'm curious about uh, Radiant Black. The first trade paperback is out this week, collecting issues 1 through 6. And then they also released issue 7 as well, so if you like the trade, you can just pick up with the issue. This is by Kyle Higgins, Cheris Chen, David LaFuente, uh, Eduardo Ferragato, Marcelo Costa, I can't say that I've read a lot of Kyle Higgins comics, 
but they're calling this, uh, you know, they're reinventing superheroes for a new generation. Nathan Burnett has just turned 30, and things aren't great. He's working and failing at two jobs, his credit card debt is piling up, and his only move is moving back home with his parents. But when Nathan discovers the ethereal cosmic radiant, he's given the power to radically change his fortunes unless the cosmic beings who created them succeed in taking them back by any means necessary. There's also a red radiant who wants Nathan dead. So this got a lot of buzz. It got a lot of pub, uh, publicity at the time. So, uh, you know, I might, I might check that one out. From Marvel Comics, we have Kang the Conqueror, One of Five, Colin Kelly, Jackson Lansing, Carlos Magno, cover by Mike Del Mundo. The origin of Kang, one of my favorite Marvel characters, my, one of my favorite Marvel villains because of the Kurt Busiek, Carlos Pacheco, Avengers Forever um, miniseries or maxi series. Um, and obviously Kang is ready to blow up all over the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's purple. I think I've talked about this before. I like this character. So I'm going to have to pick this one up. And um, one of these days, again, I want to do a deep dive on Kang the Conqueror for myself. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how this origin story holds up. From Houghton Mifflin, we have 1984, the graphic novel. 1984 by George Orwell. And this uh, adaptation is by Fido Nesti. This is $22. And uh, Boom Studios put out uh, an adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five, Kirk Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. And so whenever I see these novels translated into graphic novels, I'm always curious about them. Um, I think it was Boom that also did an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And... The concept for that was we they were going to use every word and not not just adapt it, but but just put every word of that story into the comic and not not cut out anything and then make it into a, you know, into a comic book series. So uh, I read one issue of it, but I'd never followed up on it. And I thought, you know, what I, I actually like that. I don't know if that's what 1984 does. You know, I've seen graphic novel adaptations of Animal Farm and, um, you know, other... There's a comic book series right now on, on Great Gatsby. I don't know if it's an actual adaptation or just, you know, an extrapolation. But I thought, yeah, I would love to see, like, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series told exactly like it is in the book, but adapted for graphic novels or comics. Um, but don't cut out any words, you know, try to include the, I, I don't know, I don't know how that experiment worked with um, Do Androids Dream, so, uh, you know, I'm going to have to go back and maybe, I don't have many of those issues, but I'll, I'll have to go check them out. From Fantagraphics, we have Crisis Zone by Simon Hanselman. In March 2020, as the planet began to enter lockdown, Cartoonist Simon Hanselman set out to make the greatest webcomic ever created. Crisis Zone escalated right alongside with daily posts on Instagram, and it is presented here, uh, collected, with a bunch of added pages and deleted scenes, as well as director commentary. And it bounces rapidly between comedy, horror, action, and relational soap operatics. Crisis Zone refuses to take the pedal off the gas as we all hurtle down towards unknown destinations. Doesn't really tell you much about it, right? But when you look at the artwork, it's just zany and fun. So I want to give that a look. From Dead Reckoning, we have Four-Fisted Tales, Animals in Combat. This is by Ben Toll. Uh, and it's basically, in every military conflict in recorded history... Animals have fought and often died alongside their human counter counterparts. So this shares the stories of animals who fought alongside in the trenches, in the jungles, in the deserts of the world's battlefields. From Hannibal's elephants in ancient Rome to mind-sniffing rats in Vietnam and everything in between. So this is highlighting the real-life contribution of these underappreciated animal warriors. Sounds like uh, an interesting concept. 
$24.95 for that. And then I believe there should be Lazarus Risen number six, Greg Rucka, Michael Lark. Um, this is what, being put out quarterly, I think, at $7.99. It's been a while since we've had uh, an issue. But Lazarus is a series that has been going on for a while, and it's nice to see that a new issue has come out. All right, as promised, let me hit you up with some reviews uh, from books that have uh, come out in the past couple weeks or even couple months. From July 21st, I read Moon Knight number one, start of a new series, obviously, right? Because a new TV show is in the works. This is by Jed McKay. Alessandro Capuccio, Rochelle Rosenberg, Corey Pettit, under a cover by Steve McNiven and Frank D'Armada, a cover that really invokes kind of like the 90s Moon Knight flavor. I do not know this creative team. I don't believe I've read anything from Jed McKay or Alessandro Capuccio. Uh, I get the feeling that this first issue will appeal to those people who maybe have read previous Moon Knight stories, maybe like the Jeff Lemire version or other versions. Uh, I have not read a Moon Knight comic in a long, long, long while. I think the last Moon Knight series I read was the one drawn by David Finch, and I think it was Charlie Huston that was the writer. Um, so there's stuff in here that I'm not familiar with, like the Moon Knight that's in a suit with a... Um, you know, Moon Knight mask over his face, and he's running the Midnight Mission, and he's still the fist of Khonshu. Uh, apparently, there was a storyline in Avengers where, you know, the Moon Moon God was arrested, <laughs> um, and now he's in imprisonment in Asgard. So I don't know what that was about. And Moon Knight is doing his thing, protecting people who walk the night. I'm not quite sure what he means by that. There's vampires, there's um, the character of Vermin from Spider-Man, and that makes sense. I mean, Moon Knight was created to fight werewolf by night, so he, oh, yeah, of course he should be wrapped up in, like, werewolves and vampires and mummies because he's Egyptian and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So people can come to him and they can ask him for favors because somebody is tormenting a building or whatever. Um, and then he is then being interrogated or or he's in a therapy session to talk about his life. Uh, a question is brought up, you know, hey, Moon Knight, can you die? Because he apparently has died before and he says, I don't know. And then he meets another member of the Khonshu cult um, who is going to give him some trouble. Um, this other member refers to Moon Knight as Khonshu's right hand or right fist, but this character is Khonshu's left fist, and uh, some, there's a name, something like Hunter's Moon. So I guess he he's going to be an opposite for Moon Knight, he's going to be an antagonist for Moon Knight. Uh, the artwork, the story, the way it jumps from scene to scene, it's, it's okay. While there are some interesting ideas in this. I can't say that it's supremely well executed. I thought, you know, when these when these people are coming to Moon Knight to ask for his help, they're like, hey, uh, some something is scratching at the doors of my apartment building. And then right away, Moon Knight's like, great, I'll be right over. So there's no, there's no in-depth conversation going on. So you don't get to know who these people are. You don't get to know how they really uh, see Moon Knight, they just show up at his mission and ask for help, and he does it. Um, the therapy session was okay. It was you know I, I liked that, uh, but it all felt kind of surfacey a little bit. And I know it's only the first issue, but um, the artwork as well. There's not a lot of depth in this artwork. Like for instance, this is a small thing, but somebody was driving and holding a steering wheel, but it all felt really flat. It didn't feel like the hand was really holding the steering wheel. So there are moments of like some bigger splash pages splash pages that I was like, okay, I, I kind of like that. But the anatomy, the style just reminds me of, I hate to say this, but reminds me of artists that are kinetic and fast, but it feels a little rushed. Uh, at times, I know what they're going, I can see what it's going for, 
Um, but it feels thin. It comes across thin to me. So I was not uh, I was not a fan of this first issue. And and does it make me want to read the second issue? Maybe, maybe. But I can't imagine I would give it too much more than that if it felt like there wasn't anything else to it. So, uh, you know, not a not a well not an in depth review for Moon Knight number one. But I read it, so I thought, okay, I'll talk about it. Also from July 21st, we have Blue and Gold, number one of eight, a miniseries from DC Comics. This is by Dan Jurgens, Ryan Sook, Rob Lay, and it features Booster Gold and Blue Beetle teaming up again uh, to quote-unquote save the day, actually to go on a mission to rescue the current members of the Justice League because they were... Uh, abducted by some aliens who have some plans for the planet Earth. So we have Booster Gold, we have Skeets, we have Blue Beetle. We do not have a Bwahaha in sight. At least I don't think we did. Um, and it, the whole thing kicks off with Booster Gold trying to become viral, trying to um, get people to to buy into his... Uh, you know, PayPal account, everything has changed, right? It's not PayPal, it's please pay me, um, you know, it's not Twitter, it's something else, but it's all there. I'm not a big fan of that. So he's trying to save the day, he's trying to go live so people can watch him and support him. Uh, he wants to be famous. And then when he teams up with Blue Beetle, the whole point is let's go save the Justice League because then maybe we can become members of the Justice League. And it doesn't quite turn out that way, obviously. While this is going on, there's a running commentary of people who are watching the live stream uh, of all of these events. So you have these characters who are, you know, either cheering them on or calling them fake or, uh, you know, just a typical online commentary. And one of the characters is Bibbo from, from Dan Jurgens' run on Superman. Um, so that's kind of fun. But I have to say the whole it's the whole mix of it. I'm not sure Ryan Sook's artwork fits humor, uh, at least as told in this story, because I also don't think Dan Jurgens' humor is all that humorous. Um, I don't really laugh at the jokes. I kind of cringe. They're a little generic. It is not. They're not portrayed like they were in. The, uh, you know, during the Bwahaha Justice League, where they were almost like, you know, bumbling fools. But still, there was something about it that I was like, ooh, this is, this feels like old man humor and, and not, not catchy, edgy humor. I mean, I certainly don't want James Gunn humor, but I don't know what this is. And I don't, the story felt kind of light, it felt kind of generic. Obviously, it feels like a mini-series or a limited series because there's no way this could last for uh, uh, an entire series. Um, I hope the next issue is better. Uh, it's not badly drawn and it's not badly put together when you when it comes to the artwork, but there's something about... There's like a weird disconnect. Um, it's almost like I don't want Ryan Sook's artwork wasted on... Uh, a buddy comedy book or if it is a buddy comedy book then let it be funnier you know um, let him go to some strange locations you know really test Ryan Sook's artwork and his skills uh, you know get him out of a city and into some stranger locales um, so now I will say this the Ryan Sook artwork is a lot different than what I see in Legion of Superheroes so you know he <laughs> Maybe he's like, you know, great, I only have to draw two characters, maybe three, awesome. But ultimately, you know, for a book that has been clamored for for quite a long while, not a strong landing, I, I not a strong opening. Um, I'm going to read it, but I, I can't recommend it. I mean, I, I certainly can't say if you loved Justice League International, you should read this because no. I mean, Dan Jurgens is not a name that I put towards funny books, you know? 
Um, so, mm, this is a miss. This is a definite miss. Uh, if you're someone who likes to look at art, pretty good artwork, great. You might go into it uh, and really enjoy it. Also, I'm a little confused about Ted Kord. He feels really young. I don't know where he exists within the DC Universe at this point. Um, clearly, they have history. Um, I even think, you know, certainly the way Tom King handled this pair in Heroes in Crisis, uh, that, I don't know, there's something about that that actually worked, whereas this feels like, I don't know, the weight's not there, the, the, it's just, I don't know, I just don't enjoy it. So, uh, Blue and Gold, number one, there's, there's another review. Which brings us to Spawn Universe One-Shot from June 23rd, Image Comics and Todd McFarlane. And unfortunately, it's going to be a three out of three with this one. So this is artwork by Jim Chung, who can still draw a mean comic. Brett Booth, Steven Segovia, Marcio Takara, Adelso and McFarlane are on inks. Tom Orzakowski on letters. Colors by FCO Placencia. Andrew Dalhouse and Peter Stigerwald. Um, you have characters like Spawn, Gunslinger Spawn, She Spawn, Cygor, Medieval Spawn, Cogliostro making an appearance throughout the whole story, a character that kind of tickled my memory of when I used to read Spawn back in the early 90s. Um, this one shot is meant to create a shared universe. So think of something like, I don't know, DC Rebirth or Marvel Legacy. It's a way to kick off uh, a new chapter in the Spawn Legacy. The new titles are going to be King Spawn, Gunslinger Spawn, and The Scorched. So reading the story, uh, apparently the throne of hell has been vacated. The war between heaven and hell still continues to this day. Um, there's spillover from a previous story with a battle against Omega Spawn. There is a new player already uh, with a pretty great visual design known as Disruptor. And something about the Dead Zone portals are all locked. So there's enough information here to kind of give you an idea of what has come before and what is still important for future issues. So... It's enough to give new readers kind of like a status quo and a setting. And I have to imagine older readers, if you're hearing all of that, some of that might, you know, be familiar. Now, ultimately, though, is it a compelling enough read to continue on to those new titles for me? You know, that's the point with a one shot like this. And, and I love one shots like these. So did it work? Um... I don't know. Um, I'm not sure that Todd McFarlane has grown all that much as a writer, honestly, since those early 90s comics. It worked back then because Image was so new. It was different. The, the quality of the paper stock was different. The color, it was wild. It was zany. I wanted it to be wild and zany. It was bombastic. Um, but does it, in many ways, this was actually, I thought, kind of tame. You know, even though Jim Chung's artwork is amazing, is it Spawn, you know? And is the story enough to drive me to want to pick up these new titles or to go pick up the Spawn comic again? And really, am I the target? Am I the target for this, you know? I know it's selling in crazy numbers, probably bolstered by the variant covers, so the demographics of people reading this have to be has to be wide. You know, it can't be all young readers that this is targeted to, you know. Um, now, those young readers would love to see a spawn that shoots pistols and, and wears a 10-gallon hat. But me, eh, not so much, you know. Um, there's a narrator, the, the whole narration that seems to carry throughout all of the, the main story and the backup stories. It, it feels all the same. It doesn't quite have the same punch like the narration in the animated TV series 
that used to be on HBO, which was by Richard Dysart. Uh, there was something about that that kind of gave the show a feel, a certain kind of feel. And I guess that's what's going on here, but I think it's way too wordy, just way wordy. Uh, for instance, McFarlane is again using newscasters for exposition, you know, it's something that he did way back in those early issues. But I look at it and I just, it's like words. It's just words. So, um, whereas that first initial story had a lot of content and information, I felt the backup stories surprisingly were kind of light and almost too short. And while they gave a slight inter introduction to the characters, uh, I'm not certain of what direction they're going to be going in with either the new titles or wherever they're going to show up. You know, small little hints here and there, but nothing really sold me, you know. Um, yeah, that's, I wanted to read it because, you know, there was buzz about it. And I like the, the notion of a shared universe, so I thought, sure, let me jump in. That's what this kind of promotion is for. It didn't necessarily work for me, but maybe it worked for you if you're someone who's been reading Spawn for a while. So if anyone picked this up on a whim, or if you are a Spawn reader, let me know. Let me know what you thought. Unfortunately for me, like I said, all three of these books, not, um, not, not enough for me. You know, especially in terms of what kind of backing that they got from their individual publishers, you know. Uh, if Marvel is banking on this Moon Knight series to be, to, to capture whatever is going to come up with a TV series, mm, that's not working for me. Blue and Gold, something we've been waiting for for a while. Again, not all that great. And this whole Spawn jumping on point, uh, you know, I'm real sort of hesitant and tentative about it. So, three out of three. Not not great, right? But, you know, that's the way it is. I, I remember talking on, when I was on um, the Uncanny X cast, one of the episodes of with Brian and Rob, uh, and they asked me a question, something about, you know, are they getting too down on comics? And, and I remember saying something like, look, as you get older, maybe you get a little more discerning, and you want to read comics that aren't, you want to read comics that are either really, really good or or that you know immediately are bad so you don't have to read them, right? But it's when it when you get this, like, middle ground, that's what's really frustrating because you start to see that there's a lot of average, mediocre stuff going on out there, and you, you just want it to be better because you know it can be better. So when I'm kind of in the middle like this, uh, it, I, I tend to write off these books very easily because I, I don't know how much we're going to remember them in in years to come when it's when something is really bad you remember it when something is really good you remember it right so um I don't want to do reviews that are that are about things that I didn't like but I wanted to try to cover these three I wanted to cover these three things because I felt like people out there were probably excited for it and I wonder what your opinion is as well. So there you go. Uh, I will continue to do reviews um, as, as we go. Theater Thursday. One of my favorite musicals is Sunday in the Park with George. It might even be my favorite musical. Um, and it's by Stephen Sondheim, Music and Lyrics, book by James Lapine. And I was just randomly kind of looking at my bookshelf one day, and I, I have a, a hard hardcover collection from Applause Musical Library. Um, this is from, let me see if I can see when this is from. So hopefully the noise isn't too bad here. Um, this particular is from 1991. So they put out a, a series of these hardcovers. Uh, I had one on Sweeney Todd, um, 1776. I don't know if they're the same publisher, but anyway, so it's, uh, the script. It's basically the script. And then in the back, there's some pictures and some other, you know, uh, little things here and there, some cast lists from the various productions. 
But the thing I like about it the most is it has a monologue from Act 2 that George does. If you don't know, Sunny in the Park with George is about the life of George Seurat. And it's a fictional account of his life and his artistry. And it really is about, like, what it means to be an artist. It's Stephen Sondheim dealing with the pointillism art style, but in terms of music. And it has a lot to say about art, regardless of what medium you use. So in the second act, it opens with the characters in his famous painting. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, a Sunday... A Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte. And they're in the painting that he has created all through Act One, and all they do is just stand there, right? And they sing a song about it's hot, somebody has to scratch their nose, etc., etc. And it's pretty funny. So they sing that song at the top of Act Two, and then all of the characters walk out of the painting and they, they talk about how George Seurat has died. But between those two things, there is a monologue that George uh, recites. And it's not ever done, at least, I shouldn't say, I've never seen it done. I've never seen it done live. And I wondered how many people actually knew about it. So if you're someone who knows Sunday in the Park with George, there is a monologue. And I'm going to read it because I like it. It has things to say about art and childhood and an artist's struggle. Uh, so the stage direction is the characters shake themselves loose from the pose for a brief moment, but at the last beat of music, they resume their position. George enters downstage and stands on the apron in front of the tableau. This is George speaking. A fascination with light. The bedroom where I slept as a child, it had a window. At night, the reflection of the light that is, the light outside the window, created a shadow show on my wall. So it was, lying in my bed, looking at the wall, I was able to make out shapes of night activity from the street. These images were not rich in detail, so my mind's eye filled in the shapes to bring them to life, straying from the point. The point, light, and sleep. I didn't sleep. Well, of course I slept, but always when there was a choice, when I might fight the urge, I would lie awake, eyes fixed, fixed on the wall, sometimes until the bright sunlight of the morning washed the image away, off and running, off and running, first into the morning light, last on the gaslit streets, energy that had no time for sleep, a mission to see, to record impressions, seeing, recording, seeing the record, then feeling the experience, connect the dots, George, slowing to a screeching halt in one week, fighting to wake up, wake up, Georgie, I can still feel her cool hand on my warm cheek. Could darkness be an inviting place? Could sleep surpass off and running? No. Lying still. I can still see the boys swimming in the Seine. I can see them all on a sunny Sunday in the park. So it's a little bit about his kind of manic approach to his artwork um, and his childhood because his mother is a character in the musical and how he sees. There's a lot of words and lyrics about what it means to see and perceive. And it also, you can see there at the end, is also about his thoughts of uh, death and what new perceptions that would bring. He died young. I mean, he was 31, and he died in his parents' home, and he had a lot of illness as he was dying. So that kind of mental anguish in the words, uh, you know, you could you could certainly act those out in a in a much more dramatic way than than I read it. Um, but it speaks to a lot. It speaks a lot to the way he thinks um, that he was such a young artist and such a young man as he was creating all this stuff, um, the, the obsession with color, pointillism, etc. So I just thought that was interesting to read because if you are someone who knows the musical, or you've seen it, or you've been in it. That monologue is not done. It's not done often. I don't even know if it's in an actual script, um, but I wanted to read it here. And um, there, there's a lot in this musical that you can you can connect to art in a much larger degree, not just in, um, you know, with painting, but with anything, you know. I'm sure there are ways that I could connect it to podcasting. So, all right. I hope you enjoyed that. 
Friday wrap-up. All right, just a few things here at the end here. Um, uh, There is a new Tower episode, Tower episode 40, which takes a look at the 40th anniversary of the new Teen Titans. It also, uh, you also hear my thoughts on the first three episodes of Titans season three. So it's a return to the the Tower podcast, uh, a podcast that I've been meaning to bring back for a while. So if you haven't heard that, that was the episode just before this episode. Also check out DC All-Stars episode 70, which is a review of the Suicide Squad movie. And this is with Daryl Taylor, Julian Lytle, Hassan T, and myself. So yes, I did do a segment of Suicide Squad on a previous digest, but this is a much fuller conversation. And we get into a lot of things like um, fandom expectation and story stuff, characters that were used. We even talk a little bit about what we would want to see in like a third Suicide Squad movie. We don't all like it, um, but we do have a conversation about it, uh, which is which is nice. So, uh, and then finally, um, I just have a question here: How do you consume your podcasts? How do you listen to podcasts? And I mean this in terms of time. So, in the old CGS days. Even though we were putting out a lot of episodes, we stuck to our guns and we said, look, a lot of people have hours to kill while at work, you know, while they're sitting there seven, eight, nine hours a day or commuting, they need to listen to music or radio or podcasts and we wanted to give them content, right? And I think because we are collectors, if you're a comic book collector, you got to get it all, right? And you got to listen to every podcast. So if you're someone that doesn't have a lot of time, five episodes a week can be, that can be, you know, time consuming. But for the majority of listeners who had the time, um, having many episodes didn't phase them. But really what I'm thinking about is what, what are your listening habits like now? If you're working from home, if you're not commuting as much, I know there are people who are still going into their offices, but what's, you know, what, what's it like? What's it been this past year or two? Um, do you listen at work? Do you listen during chores? Do you still commute? What's your routine? I'm really curious to know. I'm not using this as a way to change what I'm doing. I still believe, especially with the Daily Rios, that um, I like digestible sized podcasts you know the digests so far have only been about less than an hour who knows what this one will be um but when i did the first year of the daily reels you know some of those episodes were like three minutes long you know um but then i do believe you know give them a longer episode when it's a specific topic such as like when we when eric and i do the legion project podcast those episodes are long but they don't come out as much so you can you can take your time consuming those episodes. Um, I think if the Legion Project was a a show that we did once a week, they wouldn't be as long. And same thing with like um, conversations that I've been having with Timeline Tuesday or interviews, you know, I, I don't mind them being long because they don't come out as often. So, so, um, yeah, Again, I'm I'm really only just listen looking for what is your podcast listening habit. Podcasting has grown and developed and exploded, so you're listening to way way more podcasts now. I be, I I'd have to imagine. So how do you get get it all in? You know, I'm pretty current on a few of my podcasts, but there are many more that I want to listen to that I'm way behind. And I try to find time when I can, when I'm driving, if I'm working out, um, maybe right before bed, if I just want to close my eyes and listen to something, you know, so curious, just curious. So let me know, Peter at thedailyrios.com. Go to the website, thedailyrios.com and leave me a message there. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Follow me on the Instagram of the Daily Rios. This has been the Daily Rios, episode 517, the seventh Daily Rios Digest for Sunday, August 22nd, 2021. Talk to you soon. You never said you and Booster were friends. (laughs) It never came up.
A consummate professional like you, friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. 